from Flourish DX School, this is the Flourishing at School podcast. With mental health becoming a global priority, we are your partner for creating schools where students, teachers and school leaders feel good and function well, becoming the best versions of themselves and contributing to a flourishing world. Welcome to the Flourishing at School podcast. I'm Tamara Lechner. Each week, my co-host Jason Van Shee and I bring you the best practitioners, academics, and everything in between in order to inform best practice in whole school mental health. Jason and I have been doing a marathon of recording. Um, and so rather than talk about what we do to feel good and increase our well-being, I want to take a moment and ask Jason, what do you do to function well? to get stuff done when you're on the road, you're under time constraints, and you're maybe a little bit depleted. How, how do you get stuff done, Jay? Well, you got to start with self-care. And so it's usually a nap and a coffee. Um, something that people might not be aware of is the caffeine or the coffee nap. Um, so caffeine actually takes about 20 minutes or so to actually start to take it, take an impact. So if you have a strong mm. cup of coffee, then go and have a nap, shut your eyes, and then you wake up you get the benefits of both the nap and the caffeine hitting you at the same time. Uh, and then you feel super alert. So uh, I didn't get my nap, but I've got some caffeine. I'm ready to go tomorrow. Well, and it's clearly working because for those of you who are listening, you need to hop over and watch because Jason's eyes just got huge. He looks a little bit over caffeinated, kind of, kind of uh, like a cat on catnips. <laughs> so I, we'll I go before it. you crash. <laughs> yeah, good idea. It's, it is uh, 4 a.m. in, uh, no, what time is it? Just uh, it's 4 a.m. in Perth, and um, I'm heading home tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to getting home and defrosting. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Helen Kelly. And I know that Dr. Kelly has been on your other podcast before. She's a researcher, a writer, a speaker, and her thing is school well being. She is also known for her work as a school leader. And she is about to release a new book that I think is going to help our listeners. So I can't wait to hear more about Dr. Kelly and her work and her book. Welcome. Hi there. Good to see you both. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. It's a, it a pretty easy uh, idea to get you on, Helen, um, given that I think on the Psych Health and Safety podcast, you're probably only... Uh, one of one or two people uh, specifically focused on um, school education um, yeah. that, we, that we've had on. So ha had to get you on. You're, you're a legend. Um, and it's going to be a fun conversation. <laughs> no one's ever called me a legend before. That's a um, first. Thank you. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> there you go. And I'm, I'll, I'll say it again. Now, I really enjoyed our chat last time, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy the chat again today. Um, but maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar with your body of work, maybe uh, if you can just give us a brief rundown of, um, you know, what have you, um, uh, or tell us a bit about your background and, and what you uh, work on these days. Yeah, I haven't trodden a traditional path, really. Um, what brings me to this is that um, I was originally a, a lawyer, a solicitor, working in the field of health and safety at work. And I did that for 10 years. And I guess that's where my passion for workplace well-being began. And um, then I decided I wanted to travel the world and I was a lawyer and my husband was an engineer and those two things didn't really go together for working overseas. So we were qualified to become teachers and worked in international schools for pretty much all of my career. 
Um, so I was a teacher for six years and then I became a school leader. I was a principal in three schools in Bangkok and then Berlin and then Hong Kong over a period of 15 years. And then in 2019, unfortunately, I suffered an occupational burnout myself and decided that I was going to retire from my work in schools. But actually, probably not coincidentally, um, for the last 10 years, so what a good... Uh, four years before I suffered my burnout, I'd actually been researching into principal um, school leader well-being and teacher well-being, and that was the subject of my um, EDD thesis. Um, and so I retired, um, thought that, you know, that was it. And then, of course, it was in the middle of COVID. And so there was a huge demand for people um, who knew stuff about well-being and so people started contacting me um, and I, I started speaking at a lot more conferences and I did some pieces of research um, about well-being in schools during the, the COVID uh, crisis. And then I started consulting with schools, uh, delivering workshops. Um, I've, all, I've had a blog now for about seven years, maybe. Um, so I write a lot of articles for that and it just kind of took off really. And then two years ago, um, I had the go ahead from the publishers, uh, Routledge, to start writing my book and delivered that about six months ago. And it's just about to go on sale on the twenty. Well, it's available for pre-order on Amazon now, as they say, um, and it comes out on the 28th of February. And that's called uh, School Leaders Matter preventing burnout, managing stress, and improving well-being. So that's me. Uh, very, very, very timely. Um, it will be one of those things that look like it came out, like you wrote it for the time. But uh, obviously, it's uh, it's. It's, it's been so 10 important. years in the like, making. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it well, Congratulations on getting it done, because 10 years in the making is a big, big deal. I'm interested to unpack what the main messages are in the book and to connect them to your personal story of how you knew you were burnt out and, and what did that look like and feel like? So could you tell us a bit about the main messages? Sure, yeah. I think that it comes in two parts and the first part is what I'm most passionate about, but then the second part obviously is more practical and it's what the publishers wanted. The first part is really about how we got here. And there's a historical background of how the school leader's role has changed over the last 50 years to a point where it's now become unsustainable for most people. And there's data to show that. Um, and then I go through a number of chapters um, which highlight different aspects of the school leader's role and what makes it so demanding. Um, and that includes workload and the emotional demands. There's also a chapter on leading through a crisis. There's a chapter on international schools. And then there's a chapter about burnout and what burnout is, the burnout continuum, how you, uh, the burnout process, how you recognize burnout. And obviously in the preface, as you do with these books, I start to tell my own story and then I pick up on that story in the burnout chapter. And then again, at the very end of the book, but then part two is a, a, a kind of what can we do about this? And so the first chapter, again, is me on my kind of, um, you know, soapbox. Uh, it's about what governments can do because, you know, primarily that's what's ne needed. 
Um, and it was good to really research that and get a lot off my chest. Um, and then there were three chapters about what schools can do and how we take a strategic approach to um, improve school leader well-being by finding out, collecting data in different forms and finding out what's needed in, it, in a, each school and then um, outlining a range of primary and secondary interventions that schools can put in place. And then there are three chapters for school leaders about what they can do, how they manage their stress through effective work recovery. There's a chapter about self-sabotage behaviours. And then there's a chapter about recovering from burnout. And then I pick up on my own story again and how I recovered and where I find myself now. So um, the, the publishers tell me that it's hard hitting. I hope it is. Um, and yeah, I, you know, looking back on it now, I'm really proud. I can't wait to read it. And it sounds like something that everyone going through teachers, college teacher education should be reading as a proactive lesson rather than waiting until they hit that burnout. Something that Jason and I have chatted with about a few guests recently, because of course, when we're talking about flourishing in education, teacher burnout, unfortunately, is a reoccurring theme. And, and something that I have wondered about, and I'd love to get your take on it, is the fact that unlike other work, teachers have this, one of the highest senses of, of meaning and mattering and being connected to purpose. And I wonder how much this is connected to keeping a school leader or a teacher in a role that is burning them out. Uh, that they have this sense of, well, I'm going to keep doing it because it matters. I'm changing lives of, of little humans. I'm making the future a better place. And so I'm willing to give myself up. Is that something that you Absolutely. explored in your research or even personally? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the research shows actually that, that veteran teachers are much more likely to continue working in their role when they're experiencing burnout. They plan to leave the profession, but they put more long-term plans in place. And, you know, what, what age can I retire kind of thing. Um, whereas actually that's not the case with novice teachers. Novice teachers are now leaving the profession at much higher rates than they ever have before. And then, the, the, you know, the 25% leave within the first three years. And so for novice teachers, um, that kind of sense of duty and purpose of calling, whatever you want to call it, the meaning that they derive from their work isn't enough to keep many of them in the profession. Um, you know, the burnout um, experience is so severe for them that they're just walking away. Um, we, we had a conversation recently with a head teacher here in the UK, and uh, he said when working at a quite a prestigious school, um, after going to speak to the head teacher there, uh, and after, and, and he'd been working seven days a week for a whole term, and he brought that up with the head teacher and said, I think I need a break. Uh, I think I'm overworked. And the head teacher's response was, well, if you love what you do, it's not really work, is it? Um, yeah, that's so outrageous, that's a, isn't it? that's a reasonable response? <laughs> no, of course it isn't a reasonable response. And the data shows, um, you know, there's a lot of research into what causes burnout in educators. The research shows that for teachers, the single greatest cause of burnout is workload. The second is community, so poor relationships. But for school leaders, actually, commu mm. poor, 
support community or an imbalance in community is a great a bigger factor than workload yet workload is number two you know but the workload is enormous and in my book in the first chapter when I talk about the intensification of the school leader's role and then I think in the uh, third chapter when I talk about workload demands you know I, I draw upon research from all around the the kind of anglophone world in, in particular about just how many hours school leaders are working and how that compares to the OECD average and how ludicrous it is and also you know there, there's so much research and I'm sure you you know you know this because you work in organizational you know psychology and stuff that, that that actually if we work over a certain number of hours a week it's actually completely pointless there's good good research from Stanford mm. University to show that anything over 60 hours is is you know counterproductive so actually I think the the, the way that we tap into this the way that we um, make schools aware that this is an issue isn't to talk about necessarily uh, the impact of working long hours on the individual but actually the impact that this is going to have on the organization and ultimately on the students and they are the core purpose you know the student outcomes are the core purpose of the school mm. so if we can create a direct link through the research um, from teacher and school leader well-being through to student outcomes and organisational effectiveness. That's probably the best chance we've got of making people take notice. Uh, and in fact, I brought that up um, recently and it was a clip that I shared on LinkedIn just this week um, talking through that, how the school systems are designed for student outcomes, right? Um, they're not designed with the teacher uh, in mind. Um, uh, what, what's your commentary around that and what could schools potentially do, do you think, to improve the systems that clearly aren't designed for, to support teacher wellbeing? It's interesting you say that, Jason, because uh, when I moved to my school in Berlin in 2012, um, I was six years into my school leadership career. And actually what I found there in Germany was a very different environment where actually there was an enormous amount of emphasis placed upon the school being a good place for people to come to work. And I'm really embarrassed and ashamed to say at the time I was working in a completely different mindset and I didn't get that because I thought that, you know, students come first and if it's necessary for people to work too hard in order to put the students first. So I was one of those head teachers and, you know, I, I had mm. the staff, um, at the union, uh, the Betriebsrat, the Works Council did a workload survey, you know, to try to, uh, as a weapon against me. And, and it was an us and them scenario, which is bizarre, really, considering I come from a trade union background, you know, um, and I look back on that now and really think, wow, I was so wrong, you know, and what we need mm -hmm. to help school leaders and governors to understand is that these that, that looking after attending to the well-being of staff is not uh, contrary to the core purpose of the school. It supports it. And interestingly, I delivered a workshop, a three hour workshop to an SLT in a, a school in central London. Um, just before Christmas and at the end of that I asked them to tell me what they thought the key takeaways were and that was the one that warmed my heart the most when they said what we've learned is that actually well-being is not contrary it doesn't undermine the core purpose of the school it supports the core purpose of the school and that's the message we need to try to get across.
he must have delivered it really well for them to have <laughs> pulled that out. So I'm I'm so happy when I hear that there are people like you that are doing this work because we know that the cortisol levels in students are impacted. That's that stress hormone that when a teacher is stressed or burnt out, even if they don't tell their students, even if they're trying their best to hide it, research shows that the student's cortisol levels also increase. And so absolutely, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, we haven't been able to create a direct link yet between teacher burnout and student burnout, but student cortisol levels, absolutely. Student engagement, disruptive behaviour in the classroom and academic outcomes. Some great work from York University in the UK uh, uh, in 2020, I think it was, um, that, that really provides all of those links for us. And I think that this kind of work, you know, all of my work is research based. And I always say to everyone, this isn't because I say so, it's because people much more clever than me who've dedicated their lives to this say so. You know, it's all based on the research. Um, because there's a lot of fluffy stuff around well-being, isn't there? And I'm absolutely not interested in anything fluffy in any shape or form. You're preaching to the choir because I'm the queen of not <laughs> fluffy. And, and yet I would say I'm fluffier than Jason, and often in our conversations, I'm saying, okay, Jason, this is going to sound woo-woo, but hear me out because this fluff circles around and has deep science connected to it. Um, sure, absolutely. There's so a keeping... lot of deep science connected. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So I've heard you talk about your experience in Germany, and thank you for sharing that because we certainly learn from stepping into a different experience and, and opening our minds to, okay, the way that I thought things were happening. Actually, here it's different. Um, and I wonder, international schools very specifically, you, you talked about one of the two factors being lack of community. And I see international schools as doing community really well. So in your research, is there a difference between these international schools that are much more fluid? They have leaders who stay for shorter periods of time. They're all coming to a community and creating a community together. Do they do it better than other schools, do you think? Or was the school in Germany just an anomaly? I think that that's a really complex thing. I think that there's a greater need for community. And just because there is more community doesn't mean there's sufficient community you know, even in international schools. And you'll know, you know, about the work of Maslach and Leiter and what they're talking about with the six areas of work life that contribute to burnout is that there's an imbalance between what the individual needs and what the workplace provides. So it isn't just one level of community is enough, it's different for everyone. And if you have individuals who go to a country to work in a school who, are not bringing any family with them. They're a single person. Um, they don't make friends easily. Um, their need for community is going to be greater than someone who's working in the international school, who's lived in that country for 10 years, already has a community in place. And so it's much more complex than that. Yes, in many international schools are very good at building community because it is essential, but that doesn't mean that the community is still sufficient for for the needs of some individuals you know so there's you know there's no one size fits all approach but but then there's another side of this that the impact of this need for community the need to build community um, and provide community places much much greater demands on the school leader in international schools 
you know, I know that from my own personal experience. And so that being the centre of the community and being um, one of my um, interviewees years ago said to me, we're the aunties. They don't have any aunties. So they come to me as the principal first to tell us all kinds of things to seek support, and you know, and so on. Um, th that pressure um, can be unsustainable for many international school leaders. And it cannot be a coincidence that we do not have um, good retention in international school leaders, you know, when it gets too hard and we become too drained by this environment, we move on to pastures new, hoping that it will be better, you know. So what you asked is a good question, but it's a very complicated thing to unpick. And it is a great point that you've interpreted the moving on as because it's needed where I was interpreting it as this is what people like to do and, and both might be true. So I, I love that that you've shone a spotlight maybe on a different aspect of, of what my experience in international schools, um, albeit from a distance, has shown in the way I've been interpreting it. So now I'm going to have both things in mind when I talk to international school leaders. So getting right down to the nitty gritty, I want to ask you if there's something that you've either personally, when you were working in schools, tried that worked really well, or a tip from your book that you think this is something that every school should be doing that really will make a difference to the well-being of staff and students. Yeah, well, I, I'll go big and then I'll go small and I'll try and keep it brief. Um, I think that the most effective thing that you can do is create a positive workplace culture. And a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment with schools on a consultancy basis is all about that. It's about measuring the culture and then it's about enhancing the sense of belonging. It's about um, improving the, um, the, the respectful nature of the collegial relationships. It's about developing that shared purpose. Um, you know, all of that stuff. And that's what I tried really hard to do, particularly in my um, my last school. And I think that was really successful because I think that that underpins well-being. Um, from, from a school leader's perspective, um, I think there are a couple of things I think that really stand out for me. One is about building your senior leadership team to be supportive. You know, it's building those colleagues around you and making sure that your senior leadership team is effective and they've got all the tools that they need to do to, to do their job well. It's about being truly collaborative rather than thinking that you're the hero leader who's going to be doing everything yourself. You know, so it's about having those people around you. And it's also about seeking support outside um, through coaching or networking or mentoring, you know, I'm talking now from the perspective of what's, what leaders can do for themselves. Obviously what schools can do to support leaders is a much, much bigger question that I also address in the book. Um, Helen, uh, it's, it's great that you shared that with us. Uh, and you've really shared an example of uh, a learning that you made, um, in Germany, uh, at your school yeah. there. Um, we learn a lot from mistakes, right? So is there anything, any other mistakes that you've made uh, around staff or student wellbeing uh, in your journey um, that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, I'm sure that we've, I'm sure that we've all made many, many mistakes, haven't we? Um, I don't know. That's a tough one. I've made one. heaps. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a tough Jason one. It's not that it's, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I think, uh, yeah, actually, I can think of one. And again, it was in Germany. And it's about this community thing. You know, it was um, it was with parents. So it, it wasn't actually with, uh, you know, when you talk about community in an international school, the parents are a huge part of that. And that's what, one of the things that makes the job so demanding. Um, and in my first month, um, I thought it was a really good idea for safety reasons to ban the parents from hanging out on the playground after school with their kids. And um, that caused an enormous furore because for them, it was important, an important time for them to see each other, bond with each other and build that parent community, um, you know, of a, a bunch of people that had come from all over the world, didn't know anyone else. And that really helped me to understand the importance of the school, the, the important role that the school plays in building the parent community and ultimately how important parent well-being in an international school is for the students, but also for the teachers and for the leaders. Because if parents are not happy, um, you know, it, they give you a hard time and those relationships can become very demanding. So I think I learned then that actually it's also my job to look after the needs of the parents. Um, they're the clients, mm. if you like, the customers. So it's not just about the, you know, the students are not the only kind of customers, are they, in a school? There's the parents too. And I think we sometimes overlook that. We, um, I, yeah, I had an interesting conversation actually with the school just today um, because they're changing the school bus route on us. Um, and they tried to claim that it was because it was, uh, it was going to save them time and, um, uh, and it was uh, a, a better kept uh, area for the buses to travel down without scratching the bus and it was safer for drop off and pick, off, pick up. Uh, and in our case, it actually is like there is no benefit time or, or anything um, based on the current one, which actually stops right out the front of our house to now stopping a few hundred metres away. Um, yeah. It turns out after I got on the phone, actually, it's not to do with, uh, it's not about safety or performance of the bus route or anything like that. It's actually because they've got a blanket policy and if they make a change for one parent, then other parents are going to kick up. I'm like, I get that. Don't give me yeah. crap though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like uh, feed yeah. me this line that it's, 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 a better, it's a better performance when actually it's about um, harmony in the community. I get that and I can get behind that. <laughs> just, don't, just tell me that and I'll, I'll, I'll get on board. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I, it's, you see, yeah, harmony within a school community is really important. What I learned through processes like that, and you know, they all help you to become a better leader, is that actually when you make decisions mm. on your own about things, you usually make bad decisions. And actually what you need to do with every decision is pick it up and look at it from all different angles to see how it might go wrong and how people might respond. And you've got a much better chance of being able to do that well if you do it in collaboration with others. Um, and so one of the mm. things I learned during my leadership journey to, you know, to um, minimize the kind of mistakes that you're talking about is, is not to be this hero leader that does it all on my own, but to be highly collaborative because other people can help, help you to help prevent you making those mistakes, you know? Yeah. And, and that comes down to communication as well, right? Whether it's your, with your team uh, and those people, if you tell them what you're working on, they might offer support. Um, communicating with the, the student body, with the parent body. Um, yeah. yeah. If you're going to err on the side of anything, communicate too much rather than too little. 
it's about collaboration. I know some that... schools that's that that's scary. You know, the genuine collaboration, not not consultation. Genuine collaboration and genuine collaboration makes um, a, a more effective uh, workplace. It makes a more positive workplace culture. It makes a more positive culture with community culture with parents and students. And so the more you can collaborate, the better. Genuine collaboration, though, um, outside of IB schools is actually really quite rare, unfortunately. I know from school leaders that I've spoken with, a lot of times they feel as though not collaborating is them protecting, that they're taking care of their community. They're taking care of their staff. Their staff have enough to do. We, we all know how hard it is to be a teacher, uh, how much work is involved, how little you can break or, or take a moment. And, and so often when I talk to school leaders, they're not communicating from a caring space, but they don't understand kind of the knock-on effect it has that you may think you're taking care of me, but what I hear is you don't think I can handle this or my perspective doesn't matter. And the same thing is true. I'm, I'm really glad that you brought parents into this because we haven't had too many guests include parents in the school community. And we all know how getting it wrong for the parents can so negatively impact an entire school community. So I yeah, think it's absolutely. so important, those, those two points that you made. It, you know, remember the six areas of work life that contribute to burnout. One of them is control. And what we know with teachers and, you know, and school leaders, I already talked about workload and I talked about community, but the third most important is control. And so if you're not providing autonomy for your staff, but you're making decisions for them, if you're not bringing them on board with the process and truly collaborating with them, then, you know, there be dragons. And no matter how well-intentioned you are, in my opinion, it is not an effective style of leadership. However, I was dragged into that. You know, I first began my career working in the British International School, where, the, and even now, I think UK schools have a much, uh, much less collaboration. And then I went after six years to work in the IB and, you know, then worked for almost 10 years in IB schools and it was in an environment where collaboration is expected. It's something that you're, um, you know, you're measured on during your uh, accreditation process and, um, and everyone knows how to collaborate. And it, it kind of changed everything for me. Um, and now when I go into schools, the schools that I work with, one of the things I notice is how much less collaborative, truly collaborative they are uh, compared to the schools that I worked at in the you know, last um, three, seven years of my career. Yeah. It speaks to the explicit teaching of these skills. Uh, we know that well-being skills, the skills to combat burnout are learnable. So yeah, you can role model them, but the explicit teaching of this is how you communicate in an inclusive way. This is how you listen well. These are skills that I don't think many of us were taught uh, in our younger years. And they are things mm. that need to be acquired as, as yeah. you move through your career. It's funny you should say that because part of the work I do at the moment in consulting with schools around positive workplace culture is absolutely that. In fact, I just led a workshop in the first week of January that included listening skills, um, you know, and, and we look at all different kinds of communication skills, active, constructive responding and uh, 
uh, nonviolent communication and you know we also we think it's important for students to have all of this but we don't really often think about adults needing this and I've never worked in a school um, where we're teaching them how to be more civil to each other and asking people to reflect and build self-awareness around their respectful behaviours and their communication skills where people have been offended um, that I'm suggesting that, you know, or they feel that they're being treated like children. Everyone gets it. Everyone's like, wow, well, we, we do this with the kids, but actually you're right. We need this as adults too. Um, you know, educators are great. They're very open-minded and they see that this is actually value, valuable. These are a valuable set of skills to learn, which is quite heartening. <clears throat> it is. And so this leads me to a question I ask many of our guests. If you get it right, so if your book hits it big and all the teachers have read it and they understand the skills of avoiding burnout, and this leads to school communities that are feeling good and functioning well. How would you know? Is there is there a, a way that you would know walking into a school, this school has it right? Yeah, I think it's about, there's a great quote from, uh, from Rofi that I use in some of my workshops, and I can't remember exactly what it says, but it's something about, it's about the micro moments. You know, it's about those micro moments that happen. It's about the quality of the interactions between individuals. Um, I think that's the, the first way that you know. I think it's also about um, people having sufficient energy to be creative and innovative, um, and also having that psychological safety where people, you know, can admit to mistakes that they've made, can be vulnerable with each other. Um, and, you know, that also supports creativity and innovation. Um, and I also think obviously retention is a good one. It's always a good way to kind of, it's a good kind of um, litmus test, isn't it? Um, and also being told when during the recruitment process, um, you know, schools I've worked in, people have been clamoring to come and work there because word goes round, you know, that this, this school cares about well-being. Um, and so hearing that from people outside as well is always reassuring. Um, but I think really it's so, um, what's the word, amorphous in a way. It's, it, it's about uh, primarily the quality of those micro moments, those interactions, that positive kind of uh, feeling about the place. And you know it when you see it, but it's quite hard to nail down. And, you know, you can, we do nail it down, don't we? We have surveys about well-being and, and all of these things that we measure in tick boxes. But, um, but it isn't just that, is it? It's about all those little bits of hard things that are hard to measure that connect it all together. Um, yeah. Sorry if that isn't more concrete, but it's kind of like a feeling. <laughs> I think if we've learned anything, we've learned it's not concrete. As you said, there, there's not a one size fits all solution and there's not one way. There's not one thing to measure. We have to measure lots of things and ask lots of questions in order to know. And yet at the base of it, it is kind of, you know, you, you can you just do. tell when you walk into a school. I, I think as well, it's unrealistic to think that everybody's going to be experiencing maximum well-being all the time. 
you, you need to be realistic. It's different for every individual. You have no idea what's going on in their personal life at any given time. And it's about creating an environment where people can be honest if they're struggling and they can seek support but also that everyone is taking joint responsibility for well-being, not thinking that this is something that's the responsibility of um, the, the principal or, you know, any particular individual, but that we're taking joint responsibility and we're working together to ensure that we're maximising the well-being of us all together as a team um, and working to support each other and being able to be open and honest when it's not going well for us because we don't, what we don't want, and I think this is a really good place to kind of you know, finish this the response to this question, what we don't want is toxic positivity, where everyone feels that they've got to be positive all the time and pretend that everything's great when it isn't, because that's just as dangerous, isn't it, as, as negativity. I actually believe it's probably more dangerous. And yeah. that's a different type of energy that you you feel this pressure um, that that comes from people pretending to be different than they really are and, and becoming afraid to tell you and share when they're, they're having a moment. Um, and so you said that was a great place to end that question, but I actually think it's a great place to end our conversation. It, it just kind of brings everything back full circle that this, this is about acknowledging where you are, whether it's in the positive emotion spectrum or the negative emotion spectrum and being able to share that, being able to be supported. I mean, it comes back, Jason, doesn't it, to the three-pronged approach you're always talking about. Yeah. And it's great to hear Helen talk about the systems approach as well, looking at um, work factors and, and their influence on burnout rather than just uh, lack of self-care. Absolutely. Yes. Well, after talking to you, I'm more excited than ever to get this book out into the world. I think your timing is perfect. Your, your 10 years of, of, of research and writing couldn't have, <laughs> have finished at a better time. So thank you for, for putting this out in the world to support not only our teachers, but the students in their class. And, and it, it really, it affects everyone. So thank you for your work. Um, yeah, it affects more than that. I can't it, wait to read it. it affects society tomorrow. You know, I think that's the bottom it does. line. It's is everyone. That, that's, I mean, school school principals do some of the most important jobs in society, and they're nation builders, and we need to acknowledge that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Helen. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Flourishing at School podcast, and I think we're going to probably have to have you back on after this book has been out, and we can look at the impact that it's made because I'm imagining it is going to make a difference. So if you're listening to us right now, don't forget you can watch us on Flourish DX's YouTube channel. And Jason and I are both quite active on LinkedIn. Are you on LinkedIn, Dr. I Kelly? I am. I'm very active. I have nearly 14,000 followers on LinkedIn. There you go. You got us both beat. So find all three of us <laughs> there. We will be sharing some of the best bits of this interview there. And that's it for today. We'll catch you on the next episode. And until then... Keep flourishing at school and in life. You've been listening to the Flourishing at School podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on whole school mental health, follow Flourish DX School on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Flourishing at School podcast at www.flourishingatschool.com.